Welcome to Carving a New Path. My name is Andrea Hyland. I'm the host of the show. And today I have something I want to talk about. So I'm recording it with just me today. Well, the name of the show today is Waking Up to Anti-Racism. Like a lot of people, I've been reading, listening, praying, and asking questions about white fragility, and how to be an anti-racist. I thought it might be helpful to hear someone's personal process of practicing anti-racism and hear the questions I'm asking and what I've been learning. To begin, I am a 63-year-old white woman. My pronouns are she, her, hers, I am the founder of Heal My Voice, which I started after my husband died and after raising three daughters to adulthood. I care about humanity and I consider myself an everyday extraordinary woman like so many of the people on the planet, every day living our lives. And yet there's something extraordinary about each of us. I want to make a difference during my lifetime. I used to think that waking up meant that you did it once. You read some personal growth books, take some personal growth workshops, meditate, you are awake. Now in my sixth decade on the planet, I can tell you that waking up to new insights happens daily. Asking questions, being willing to listen, digesting new views, changing and integrating those new behaviors into the day-to-day life. You know, my first evolutionary women retreat in 2005, the leaders said, I will stay awake with you. I will stay awake with you is a reminder to stay awake to what you have already awakened to, and then get ready for more awakening every day that you're on the planet, having your mind and your perspectives changing with new information. I've been unconsciously, not unconsciously, maybe sometimes, I've been consciously unraveling family patterns, beliefs, and behaviors of dysfunction as well as trauma for 40 years, committed to this growth, this personal growth while I'm here. There's always something new to learn, something to heal, something to change, and then time that is needed to integrate and practice by living life, making mistakes and correcting and doing better each time. Recently, I heard Marianne Williamson describe it this way. You begin by waking up and saying no to one thing. Like, no, I I see that behavior. I see that thing I'm doing. I'm not going to do that any longer. Then you say yes to something else. You may not know what the yes is right away, but it always begins by saying no to something and then making the change. In the 1980s, I went to Al-Anon. 
then therapy, and we used the book Family Constellations to learn about my family. I knew that there was this thing called alcoholism. An early awareness in childhood was noticing how my parents drank alcohol every night and vowing that I would never drink alcohol every night. There was something about it that felt uncomfortable, something that I knew had to change. I knew my first husband was an alcoholic and I knew his father was an alcoholic. Before we got married, my husband told me he would stop drinking. Well, that seemed reasonable because all of the alcoholics on both sides of the family were functional. They had worked and raised kids, and so it must be a choice, right? What I didn't know until we had been married for a few years was the power of the addiction. Physically, mentally, emotionally, it was acceptable and even encouraged in our society to drink. Holidays and weekends were an excuse to drink more with themes and fun. It was fun. Well, when I began to call it out as a problem, no one agreed with me in either family, and I became labeled as the woman who thought everyone was an alcoholic. I became the problem. Even with my father and brother sober now for years, I can still see how the trauma is still affecting everyone in the family. 30 years later from calling it out. And as more of us are in AA or Al-Anon or working with somatic therapists, working with the body memory of this, I'm seeing more and more glimmers of change. And, and I do have hope that by the time my six-year-old granddaughter is an adult, there will be even more healing in the 50 years since I no longer accepted the excuse of alcoholism, 1985 to 2035. Change and healing takes time. <clears throat> I share that story because I'm reminded of how ingrained our beliefs and systems are and why it is going to take all of us to dismantle structural racism. Hundreds of years of this system and 155 years since the Emancipation Proclamation. Lots to unpack there. Since the murder of George Floyd, I've been doing a deeper dive on learning about systemic racism and asking reflective questions. Beginning with, when did I first become aware of race? When did you first become aware of race? You know, think about it. My first memory of race was when Pillsbury's product, Funny Face, which was a powdered drink mix like Kool-Aid, there were eight characters associated with the product. And there was a point where they changed two of the names. I was seven years old and I remember this as the first time I even thought about race. Original characters included Injun Orange for Indians, and Chinese cherry using a stereotype from World War II of the way the face was, the Chinese face, the pro propaganda. This was in 1964 when this product came out and then they changed. My dad, now 87 years old, worked for Pillsbury and I asked him this week 
about the process of changing the names from Injun Orange to Jolly Ollie Orange and from Chinese Cherry to Choo Choo Cherry. So it became a orange, Jolly Orange flavor and it became this train centered on Choo Choo Cherry who drove the, the train. I asked him, was it a focus group in marketing? Was it the civil rights movement that brought awareness? He said that people wrote to the company and said the names were offensive and they changed them. Letter writing, emails, signing petitions are some of the ways to affect change and then timing of it. Another memory is that one of my boyfriends in high school was black. I remember when my grandparents were visiting our home in Pennsylvania, a rare visit for them to travel by bus from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. They asked if I was going to bring that colored boy to the house again. Now my grandparents were not part of my day-to-day -day home life, but I remember being stunned by their words, colored boy. And just recently on a phone call with my mother, we were talking about race and she mentioned that conversation and how she talked with her parents about how no one said the word colored anymore. This was in 1974, 10 years after the civil rights movement. Well, my boyfriend and I never talked about race. His brother was a major league baseball player and my boyfriend Eric had aspirations to try out for a national team, baseball team, after going to college. I was going to college and study social work. It seemed like the doors were open for both of us and we were excited about the future. I was naive to the racism. And although I knew he was black, I didn't know what it meant to be black. And that's just one of the things I've been thinking about. Unfortunately, he died a few years ago, or I would love to have a conversation with him. Another moment, when I moved to Baltimore in 1981, I had a job in Columbia, Maryland for a year. And after my first day of work, I stopped at a bakery. And the front display was a wedding cake with a black man and a white woman as the groom and bride cake topper. I remember a visceral feeling of joy and a feeling of, I'm home. There was no logic or mind involved. It was a body reaction. I'm finally home. Well, I lived in Baltimore for 28 years and raised my children there before moving to California. While raising my kids in Baltimore, my intention was to create safe spaces for all people. But I can see now that there were ways in which I didn't see what was happening. Conversations where I didn't ask questions. I thought we were all nice, good people and people were all working together. You know, as an example, uh, we traveled with Girl Scouts to Savannah, Georgia to see Juliet Lowe's home, the founder of Girl Scouts. And there were black and white girls in our Girl Scout community in Catonsville, Maryland. Black and white leaders. 
but I never asked the black girls and their mothers or the black leaders if they felt safe on that trip or if they felt safe in our community, it, or if they had what they needed or even to let me know if they needed support in any way. I, I said it in general, but I didn't say it in regards to race. It never occurred to me that other people might have treated them badly or that I was insensitive with my words, action, and privilege. I wish I could go back and do better, ask more questions, listen, and notice. And for now, I'm looking at what I can do going forward and making amends whenever things come up. I've also been asking other questions. Why didn't we as a country dismantle structural racism in the 60s when we were on a roll for change? The Civil Rights Act of 1964. I mean, I was only eight years old at the time, but I'm, I'm wondering, you know, these, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, like what stopped the momentum? What can we do to keep the change going this time? How do we keep the momentum going? Is this time different? Malcolm Gladwell, um, author of many books, some of them are Blink, The Tipping Point, Outliers, and Talking to Strangers. Recently, he said that for the first time, we are really talking about the system. Before, we had been focused on an individual, a tragedy of someone being stopped by the police because of race being killed because of race. And then Ibram X. Kendi in his book, How to Be Anti-Racist says, slavery is embedded in everything. This is about building an anti-racist society. So think about that, where we are at this tipping point, that slavery is embedded in everything. And this time, this is about building an anti-racist society. It is more than focusing on George Floyd. And believe me, we will stay focused on him for justice. But think about this as a bigger picture, taking down Confederate statues and the Mississippi flag that had a Confederate symbol. Read the history. Some of these statues and symbols were put up to assert white domination and white supremacy years later, as late as 1970. Why would a state house put up a statue of a slave trader in 1970? Why are we honoring a slave trader? Okay, so, so think about that. And there's lots of ways to find out the history and understand this more. Um, so in 2015, Freddie Gray was arrested for carrying a knife, which was legal, by the way. The particular knife that he had was legal, but he was arrested because he was carrying that knife. Check out the podcast, Undisclosed, and the episodes called Killing of Freddie Gray to learn more about the details. So basically, Freddie Gray was thrown into a police van after being searched and 
the discovery of the knife. And then 45 minutes later, he was found beaten and unconscious in the police van and taken to the hospital where he lay in a coma for seven days before dying. There were protests, there was a funeral procession, and there were protests with some violence. Two weeks later, criminal charges were brought against six police officers. At the time, it seemed there would be justice, but there wasn't. No one was convicted. No one held responsible for the death of Freddie Gray, and charges were dropped two and a half years later. Looking back now, five years, you know, this happened five years ago, um, I feel that was the beginning of awakening to structural racism. And some things were set in motion. And, and when I say it was a beginning of awakening, um, there were things that came out of that time period. Eric Garner was killed in 2014, Freddie Gray in 2015. And the protests and the violence reached a point our voices were beginning to rise. So some things were set in motion, uh, setting up a structure that is helping us move forward now. A lot of groundwork was laid. In Baltimore, Light City was created in response to the protesting. Now the art at Light City brought people back into the city, but even more important were the conversations that happened. There was a 10-day conference for several years that looked at the problems with speakers of all races talking about what wasn't working in Baltimore and sharing ideas based on things that were working. Uh, organizations working together to build economic support specifically in West Baltimore. In 2017, Conscious Venture Labs started and continues to provide support for businesses in West Baltimore. Also, Baltimore removed all of the Confederate statues in 2015. Okay, so eight of the books currently on the New York Times bestseller list are about white privilege and anti-racism, and they were all written within the last five years since Freddie Gray's death and Eric Garner's death in 2014. Now there are documentaries and films on streaming channels. LA 92 about the riots in Los Angeles after the death of Rodney King. 13th by Ava DuVernay about racial inequality and the prison system. And Strong Island, which is a documentary that looks at William Ford Jr an unarmed black man who was killed by a white man who was never charged in 19, I think it was 94, might've been 92. And then there's Just Mercy, the story of Walter McMillian, who was wrongly accused of murder and how Brian Stevenson, founder of Equal Rights Initiative, appealed his murder conviction. And the Equal Rights Initiative, the last number I heard is that they have freed 140 people. Um, I want to say men, although there may be some women in that group, 140 who were wrongly convicted 
who were accused and the evidence was, well, watch Just Mercy, read the book, and you'll find out more about that. Since 2015, organizations were started and strengthened. We have structures set up for learning and plugging in to take action. There has been a resurgence of protest and action since the election of Donald Trump in 2016. The Me Too movement and the Women's March got us moving in 2017. March for Our Lives and committed which is committed to ending gun violence in schools and communities. That march was in 2019. So we are ready. This is the tipping point. The time is now. To unravel and dismantle structural racism, it requires all of us to keep studying and unlearning and shifting our beliefs. These are not these are not conversations to just have right now. And I can tell you, these aren't new conversations in my household. Uh, one of my daughters has worked or worked in the Baltimore City school system for four years. We have been talking about this and with friends and in groups for years and groups that I've led with Heal My Voice. It's been a conversation. And... I am waking up to things I could have done differently and seeing where I can change to do better. I am reading and rereading books about anti-racism. I spend at least an hour every day watching some YouTube videos to learn and unravel misconceptions, you know, to, to see where I've had blinders on and to wake up to that to make change. In the last two months, the books on audio I've been listening to are White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, Becoming by Michelle Obama, Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot by Mickey Kendall, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, by Richard Rothstein, My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies by Resma Menachem. My Grandmother's Hands is a book that should be required reading in school every year, including time to do the body practices in the classroom every day, breathing, body awareness, feelings, teaching this from a young age. Did you know that there is science that now proves that we carry trauma from 14 genera generations in our bodies, in our DNA? So for example, if you had a relative who fought in a war, you know, maybe World War II, World War I, that trauma is in the cells of your body. And it shows up as anxiety, depression, trauma, grief. Unraveling more of the layers of how trauma is passed on generation after generation. There's some deep work for us all to do with that.
The work of Joy DeGruy is credited in um, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Medicam as groundbreaking work that explored post-traumatic slave syndrome and led to a greater understanding of emotional and historical trauma. There is history in my grandmother's hands for white bodies and black bodies and body practices, practice as in daily, weekly, monthly. And now some of the other structure we have, we also have podcasts and videos that have been recorded in the last five years. On Being is a place to start listening. It's a podcast, On Being. We have so much information available to us now, and it's about making a commitment to do the work for change every day, forever. We have a huge job here. And it doesn't mean that you have to spend 24 hours a day on it. It's about weaving this into your life. You know, I, I've always felt responsible for the conditions of other people, but I haven't always seen what those conditions were. When I raised my kids, we volunteered in the community all the time, cleaning up litter in parks, collecting for the food bank, singing in the Girl Scout choir at nursing homes, donating clothes and toys to families in need. But it wasn't until one of the women in a Heal My Voice writing program after the death of Freddie Gray in 2015 that opened my eyes to where I had become complacent. I was living in a bubble thinking that if women of all colors and races were sharing vulnerable stories about trauma, grief, and loss, that no subject would be off limits. I was wrong. The trauma of living day to day with racism and not feeling safe because of your race needs more support and understanding to reveal. It needs to be named with an invitation to share. Just a month ago, the same woman who shared how she had been chased down in a parking lot by two white men in a car in a good neighborhood and told, nigger, go home. In 2015, that was what happened. And here, just recently, she shared that she had been racially profiled and pulled over by a police officer for not slowing down because he was at the side of the road. What about the other 50 cars that she was surrounded by who were all going 55 to 60 miles per hour on a highway? She might have caused an accident by slowing down in this stream of traffic. Why was she pulled over for a ticket or a warning? I'm not the savior of the world. I know I can't do this alone. I remind myself every day to step away from my work, from my learning about anti-racism and go out for a walk, connect with nature. But I do know that I'm posting daily on social media and now recording this podcast because to me, race needs to be in every conversation throughout my day. 
I know I'm committed with every breath in my body to do something every day, educate myself, donate money, sign petitions, call congressional representatives, protest, post on social media. These actions are woven into my day in the same way I'm committed to women healing and stepping into greater leadership in their lives. I'm making up commitment that before I go to bed every night, I make sure I've done something. I've taken one action. I've awakened more in the last five years and have been educating myself by reading books and watching films, posting on social media, but now it's time to increase that and stay with the momentum. I've got to do something every day. I ask you to do something every day. Pay attention to changing the system. I know for myself, I have a commitment to waking up every day and taking responsibility as an anti-racist. So back to the question, when did we have momentum to make a change and what stopped the momentum? I've been diving into research to research the past around systemic racism. I feel like if we talk about the history and see where change was blocked, we can avoid those pitfalls and keep going, or we can notice them and keep going. In a recent article from the Washington Post, the writer uncovered the response from President Warring Harding after the Tulsa massacre in 1921. You can Google Black Wall Street or Tulsa Race Massacre, and you can learn about what happened if you've never heard about that. But Warren Harding was president in 1921. He also called for an anti-lynching bill. So think about that. 1921. That was 100 years ago. So here's a few of the words from the article. Warren Harding, in 1921, decided to accept a commencement invitation from Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, the nation's first degree-granting historically Black institution. He would use that moment in 1921 to seek healing and harmony. And several months later, in Birmingham, Alabama, he would go much further with daring remarks about equality. Daring because he was the first president to go to the South since the Civil War ended and there were Jim Crow laws and segregation. Okay, back to the article. He was there not just for their commencement, but also to help dedicate the arch. And his words reflected a theme he sounded repeatedly during his presidency, that African-American servicemen had paid through service and sacrifice for the nation to make the world safer for democracy. They were due. This was after World War I. In the article was written, no majority, these were words that um, Warren Harding spoke when accepting his party's nomination in 1920 for president. No majority shall abridge the rights of a minority. I believe the Negro citizens of America should be guaranteed the enjoyment of all their rights, that they have earned their full measure of citizenship bestowed, that their sacrifices in blood on the battlefields of the Republic have entitled them 
to all of freedom and opportunity, all of sympathy and aid that the American spirit of fairness and justice demands. Well, Harding died from a heart attack while in office and the anti-lynching bill he asked Congress to pass died with a filibuster. So what stopped someone else from picking up the baton for freedom? He couldn't have been the only person who saw this. Lynching was on the rise, and I don't have the answers for that. It's something I'm continuing to read and discover. I mean, we do know that there was a depression in 1929, and that affected a lot of the 30s, and then there was World War II, and then we came into the um, the 60s where there was, there were people who picked up the baton and um, fought for racial equality. So I'm continu continuing to read and discover. But I wanna end this show by saying that Black Lives Matter is not a fad. It's not something we're just doing over the summer of 2020. It is the largest movement we've ever seen with all colors, all races involved, black and white, marching, protesting. This is not a moment in time for us to forget and let die. We probably have two to three years, tough years, of old systems dying while at the same time starting to build a new system of equality and humanity. I see this as a three-year cycle within a 10-year cycle within a 50-year cycle. I see it in the same way I've seen the dismantling of alcoholism and healing from trauma in my lineage. I encourage you to make plans for the future don't treat this as a month or two of protests. To dismantle the old system and create the new, see this as a new normal. Race equality is part of every conversation. Read, listen, learn, march in the streets, donate, sign petitions, stay involved. Some of the organizations I'm supporting and plugged into are the Poor People's Campaign. Equal Justice Initiative, NAACP, Color of Change, Agape International Spiritual Center. You can look them up and see if you want to support them or find other organizations. Just stay involved. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Power to the people. Stay involved, keep the conversation going, take action, rest, take action, rest, take action. It's gonna take all of us. So thanks for listening.